Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps you've read the story of the picture of Dorian Gray. And perhaps you haven't, so I'll just sum up, sum up the, the story for you in a few words. In this story, Dorian Gray has his portrait painted. And what happens is that his portrait reflects everything bad that happens to him. When he gets older, when he does cruel things, then his portrait on the wall changes to reflect who he is and what he's done. He himself continues to look young and handsome and a picture of health and goodness. And what happens is he begins to see, after every cruel and wicked thing that he does, he begins to see that portrait becoming uglier and uglier, and so finally he can't stand it anymore, and he locks it away for 18 years. And he goes off and lives a life of sin. And after 18 years, he comes back, and he, he pulls the thing out of storage, and he looks at it, and it's so hideous that he can't even recognize himself. And so he thinks, well, maybe I should try to reverse this. And he tries to do some good things. And he tries to do something nice to someone, and then he goes and looks at the picture. It's even uglier. And he realizes, to his horror, that even the good that he tries to do is really selfishness. He's doing it for himself. And the picture just doesn't lie. It just tells him the truth about who he is. And in the end, the story ends by him trying to destroy the painting in a fit of rage and fear, and it destroys him instead. And so the servants find a hideous old man dead on the ground, and on the wall, a portrait in which he is young and beautiful again. Well, God's law does something similar. When we look into God's law, it confronts us with the ugliness of our sin. And when we look into the holy law of God, it frightens us to learn who we really are. We just read in Romans chapter 3 that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And that's why... As natural fallen men, women, and children, we prefer the law to be far away from us. Think about the children. Children know this. Mom and dad have gone away. The kids are at home. They've been given clear instructions about what to do, what not to do. But mom and dad are gone. And so sometimes the children aren't listening. They're just doing what they want. And then suddenly one of them pipes up and says, remember what mom and dad said. And what is the reaction when one of the kids says, remember what mom and dad said? Nobody wants to hear that. That incites fear and the anger that goes with fear because we don't want to hear the law because the law exposes when we're not living right. And that's what God's law does to all of us, big people and little people. God's law condemns us. It comes to us and it says, you are not living right. The way you're living leads to death. It leads to death now, pain, destruction, brokenness, and it leads to death forever. You will be excluded from God's loving, gracious presence if you live in your sin. Now, what about the law is it that condemns us? 
Is it that the law is a huge book full of all kinds of rules that we have to follow perfectly for God to want to love us? If the law was like that, we could say, well, look at this thing. It's too hard. It's not fair. But the law isn't like that. The law isn't like a really hard math exam. The law isn't PhD level physics that we have to try and figure out. The law is love. God's law is love. That's all God's asking us to do, to love, to love him, to love each other. It's that simple. Love God, love your neighbor. And we can't. Love condemns us. Love condemns us. Now, in Matthew chapter 22, the Lord Jesus gives us a summary of the law. And it's quoted there in question and answer four of the catechism. And he says, it's this simple. You just love the Lord your God. How do you love him? Well, you love him with the totality of your being, all that you are, all that you do, all that you think, all the time. Totally dedicated to loving God. You need to love him with all of your heart. And the heart in the Bible is not just the muscle which keeps pumping the blood through our bodies, but the heart represents the center of who we are, the emotions, the moral choices, the will, the attitudes, the passions, the desires, the appetites, the affections, the purposes, the endeavors of the human soul. All of that's tied up in the heart. With all of that, we need to be loving God. And with all of our soul, and soul in the, in the scripture refers to us as human beings with respect to our life, who we are as living beings. It's not as though the Bible sees us as being made up of partly heart and partly soul. That's not the way it works. It's just these are different aspects, different ways, modes of looking at the human being. And then we have to love God with all of our strength. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord Jesus doesn't quote that word, but it's in the scripture in Deuteronomy 6, 5. And that's because as embodied souls in a physical world, our bodies, our actions, the power to do things, the power to change things must be done and used only to worship and to love God. And so we have Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. It says, uh, heart, soul, and might, or strength. We have in Matthew chapter 22, we have heart, soul, and mind. And then if you go to Luke Luke has it recorded as heart, soul, strength, and mind. So the words may be a little different in different scriptures, but the point is this, that all of our being, every aspect of who we are, beginning with the very core of our existence, our will, our emotions, our mind, our bodies, all of that together must be dedicated at every moment to one thing and one thing alone, and that is to worship God, to love God, to glorify God. Now notice that the Lord Jesus draws attention to the importance of loving God with your mind. 
Jesus draws attention to that part of the inner man, the heart which is engaged in thinking and rational thought. And it's like we heard this morning that the mind is involved in the worship of God. God comes to us with his word, and his word is powerful, propositional truths of the gospel that have to be embraced by the mind and which transform our mind so that we live more and more after the image of Christ. It begins in the mind. And so, as Christians, we're called to love God with our minds. That means that we embrace truth. We embrace truth, not the lie. That means if you're going to university or to a school which doesn't teach um, where there is no Christian teaching, you need to remember that you must worship and love God with your mind, which means to embrace what is true and good and to reject what is false. Now, Romans chapter 1 tells us what happens when we don't do that. Romans chapter 1 tells us what happens when we fail to love God, to worship God with our minds, when we fill our minds with all kinds of propositions which deny God and deny his revelation. What happens is that our mind starts to darken with that deceit, and as our mind darkens, our life will be not transformed but deformed accordingly in every aspect until finally we're living like the animals or worse. Romans chapter 1 lays it out in horrifying detail, that process. It begins with the mind. And so as university classes begin for some of you, it's important to remember that part of loving God involves loving God with your mind. It means humbly submitting to the truth wherever you find it, especially as it comes to you in his holy word. And so we're called to love God. We're called to love God with all of our being, with all of our life, all of the time, in every way, in every circumstance. And then we're called to love our neighbor. And the scripture says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And some people take that and run with it. They say, as yourself. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. So you've got to love yourself first. And then they build up this massive theology of self-love on these words in the scripture. That you've got to love yourself and, and you've got to prioritize yourself and and it's all you, you, you. That's where it begins. That's not what the Bible's saying. The Bible says love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's simply reminding you of how you treat yourself. If you're healthy in your mind, you take care of yourself. If you see a danger, you move away from it. If your hand's on the hot stove, you remove it because you don't want to hurt yourself. If you're hungry, you give yourself something to eat. You look for food. If you have a need, you seek to have it fulfilled. You take care of yourself and God says, listen, the way you take care of yourself, you take care of others. You're called to love your neighbor. That means to look out for their interests. We learned that this morning. To consider them as more significant than we are. To want to serve them, to minister to them so that they're cared for, they're loved, they're supported, their needs are provided for. To seek what is best for them. The way we take care of ourselves, we take care of others. We love others. We're concerned about others. We're not just living in this world looking at ourselves and thinking about ourselves. And so the scripture says on these two commandments, love God, love your neighbor, depend all the law and the prophets. That's what it's all about. That's what the whole of the Bible is about. It's about love because God is love. And he made the world to be an expression of his love. 
And this is the sum of God's will. This is the sum of God's revelation. This is the sum of God's law that God loves, that God is love, and that God wants us to love him and to love each other. That's why Romans 13.10 says this, love is the fulfilling of the law. So what's so hard about that? We're nice people. We're good people, right? We're, we're kind, thoughtful. We're loving, aren't we? So why is it such a big deal to love God, love our neighbor? Well, by nature, brothers and sisters, we're not nice people. Not by nature we are. Just look at the children again. Who has to teach the children to bicker and to argue and to fight and to hit and to steal each other's toys and to disobey mom and dad and to provoke one another and to have all kinds of fights and conflicts and to be mean to each other, to say nasty words? The kids don't do that naturally, do they? We have to send them to a special school where they learn these things, right? No, it comes naturally. This is a picture of what's in our soul by nature. And the big people, the adults, are exactly the same, except we are just better at hiding it most of the time. This is a hard truth. The Bible sticks in our face the picture, the portrait on the wall of who we are in our sins. This is an unpleasant truth. This is a painful truth that we are unable to love, but that by nature in our fallen state, we are inclined, first of all, to hate. To hate God, to hate our neighbors, just to care about ourselves. You know, Luther used this definition to describe sin. He says, sin is homo incurvatus in si. Man curved in on himself. That's all we can think about. Not our neighbor, not God, just us, just me. The very essence, the DNA of sin is selfishness. And selfishness and self-love is the other side of the coin of hatred for others and for God. What does the scripture say? Titus 3.3, for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I'm going to read that again. Paul's not speaking about the bad people outside the church. Paul's speaking about us. And the apostle says, for we, ourselves, us, God's people, Christians, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's the natural state of fallen man. Hate. The world is full of it. Social media is just infested with hate. There's anger, there's rage, 
There's selfishness, there's unkindness, there's violence, there's cruelty, there's abuse in the digital world and in the real world. And that's not just stuff that's way out there. That's stuff which we still carry in our old natures. What happens when I'm on the road and somebody cuts me off and I'm in a hurry and I'm stressed out? What's, what wells up in me? Often it's anger and a desire for revenge. What happens when somebody humiliates me in front of other people? What wells up within me? What happens when somebody hurts me or gets in my way or takes away something that I hold to be precious and dear or closes a door which I wanted to be open? What wells up in me is not love. This is who we are by nature. You know, the first step in dealing with a problem is you have to admit you've got a problem. And so we we need to look into the mirror of God's law. This is necessary if we would live. If we would have the problem dealt with, we've got to look into the mirror. And when we look closely, we realize to our horror that we are uglier than we could have imagined. That we in ourselves, outside of Christ, in ourselves, we are a frightening monstrosity. And every seed of every vile and wicked sin is in my fallen nature. There is not a sin that has been committed on the face of this earth in human history, which we would not be able to commit if Christ was taken out of the picture and if we were given over to who we are by nature. When we look into the mirror of God's law, the horrifying truth is pressed upon us that by nature we are children of wrath, as Ephesians 2 says, that we were brought forth in iniquity and conceived in sin, as Psalm 51 says. And you know, this is not something that we've become. This is something that we are by nature. It's for the very beginning of our coming into existence. Then we turn to Genesis 6, 5 to get another angle, another x-ray of our natural fallen state. Genesis 6, 5, if you have your Bible handy, it's good to just open there. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now look at those words. Not some intentions, but every intention of the thoughts of his heart. Not that they were sometimes good and sometimes evil, but was only evil. And not that they were from time to time like that, but they they were only evil continually. This is a damning indictment of who we are. There's nothing good, nothing, absolutely nothing good in us by nature. There's just horror. Now we read Romans chapter 3, and Romans chapter 3 was quoting the psalm, Psalm 14. I just want to head back there for a second, Romans 3. Romans 3, 11 and 12. This is who we are, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. 
No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's a pretty negative picture of the human race in its fallen state, brothers and sisters. There is simply no hope to be found when we look at who we are in ourselves. It's a horrible truth, but it's a truth that we have to know. We have to face it. It's like getting the scans back from the doctor, and maybe the scans are horrifying news. But if they are, they're necessary news. Because when we know what the problem is, then we can be driven to find the solution, the remedy. And so the truth about our total depravity and unworthiness and sin is a glorious gospel truth when it drives us to seek our lives outside of ourselves in Christ. You see, that's the, the important distinction here. There are two ways of looking at us. We can look at us as we are in ourselves by nature. And all we're going to do is get depressed and have no hope. Or we can look at ourselves as we are in Christ. That's what the gospel is about. Jesus came to draw you out of yourself, your sin, my sin, in curvatus in se, and he made us ex curvatus ex se. He made us to, to, instead of being curved in upon ourselves and our selfishness and our lusts and our passions and our hatred, he transforms us so that we look outwards and upwards and we look to our neighbor and we look to God and we learn to love instead of hating. That's what Jesus came to do. In ourselves, we are lost. In Christ, we are saved. Christ came. And Christ, on the cross, he became the very incarnation of our hideous, sinful, wicked, fallen human nature. He was the very portrait of who we are, vile and despised so that God hid his eyes from the sight so that even the sun would not look upon him. Creation became dark as sin incarnate was nailed to that cross and it killed him. It destroyed him. But in his death, he destroyed it. Now, there's a reason why we deal with the law very briefly in the first section of the Catechism but it's in the last section, the third section on thankfulness, that we deal with it extensively and in detail. There's a reason. Because the law has different uses. And in Christ, the main use is no longer to show us our sin. But for those of us who are in Christ, the law becomes a friend. And it doesn't show us anymore only who we were outside of him, but it shows them the beautiful picture of who we are in him. When we're in Christ, we look at the law, and we don't see something ugly. We see Jesus in all his beauty, in all his holiness, in all his righteousness, 
in all his innocence. And when we in Christ look at the law, we see the reflection of who we are in him. And we see who we are becoming in him. And we see what he is doing. He's transforming us from glory to glory after the image of himself. He's teaching us to love more and more and more. But at the beginning of the catechism, we've got the law briefly mentioned in its more painful use. And we can't just skip by this section. We need to take time to think about it. Brother, sister, in your Christian walk, take time to meditate upon your sins. Take time to meditate upon the just judgment of God that your and my sins deserve. Take time to meditate on our total incapacity to please God, our total inability to love, our total inclination by nature to hate God, to hate our neighbor, and what all of that deserves and where all of that drives us to. Eternal damnation. We need to peer into that abyss from time to time. And we need to let the horror of who we are in ourselves, we need to let that horror drive us to cling to who we are in Christ. And when we use the law in that way, it is a blessed thing. It's a painful thing but it's a blessed thing. I want to end just reading a few stanzas of hymn number 28. We're going to be singing it now. We, we sang this stanza, what God did in his law demand and none to him could render, caused wrath and woe on every hand for man, the vile offender. Our flesh has not the pure desires God's holy law of us requires. And lost is our condition. From sin our flesh could not abstain. Sin held its sway unceasing. The task was hopeless and in vain. Our guilt was air increasing. None can remove sin's poisoned dart or purify the guileful heart. So deep is our corruption. Well, that's where we stop singing. But now we're going to keep singing. We're going to keep singing with stanza four. Yet... As the law must be fulfilled, or we must die despairing, Christ Jesus came, God's wrath he stilled, our human nature sharing, the law he has for us obeyed. And thus the Father's vengeance stayed, which over us impended. Christ Jesus full atonement made and brought to us salvation. Brothers and sisters, let our reflection upon the horror of our sin, who we are in ourselves by nature, let that reflection drive us to cling to Christ.
Amen.